Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. You're listening to the Wicked Library. <laughs> Hello, kiddies! So, you want access to the Wicked Archives, do you? Well, it takes money to keep the lights on and keep our beasties fed. Trust me, you don't want them hungry. They might just start eating the writers and then where would we be? Visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash wickedlibrary and pledge your support to the show. For $2 a month, I'll give you a key to our collection of classic episodes. For $5 a month, I'll let you hear the bonus stories before the rest of our listeners. Even more tantalizing rewards await for those who want to sacrifice more to us. (laughs) Over 70 classic episodes are lurking deep in the private area of the library, just waiting to be heard by you. Pledge yourself to the library today, and you'll be ours forever. You're going to like it here, I think. (laughs) How much is it for people to enjoy the private area of the librarian, Dan? From an early age, we are taught to fear the unknown, to be afraid of what we do not understand. Well, you're about to discover that what you do know can not only hurt you, but can scare you to death. (laughs) Thirteen authors from around the world have been assembled to explore the very notion that learning about the unknown can have terrifying results. The Wicked Library presents 13 Wicked Tales, our first anthology featuring Stephanie M. Wytovich, Jessica McHugh, K.B. Goddard, Lydia Peaver, and so many others. With an introduction from Daniel Foytek, and new artwork from Jeanette Andromeda, not to mention an intro from yours truly. <laughs> Step inside, kiddies. It's story time at the Wicked Library. Available in paperback and Kindle on Amazon.com. <laughs> learn what you fear and fear what you learn. <laughs> ah, so you've come in search of a story, have you? Well, you've come to the right place. My private collection of dark tomes are hungry for your fear, filled with stories that are sure to terrify, disturb, and delight. Be warned, though, these tales are not for sensitive listeners. You're going to hear things that will upset and quite possibly offend. Ah, here's a good one. Follow me now and we'll enjoy this tale together. It's story time 
at the Wicked Library. <laughs> Today's episode of the Wicked Library, episode number 914, Cinnamon to Taste, by Christy Noble, is told by Sarah Ruth Thomas, scored by the incomparable Nico Viteze of We Talk of Dreams. Now, let's get wicked. Marnie is doing the babka today, which means her Aunt Cindy will do donuts. Babka starts with a dense, egg-rich dough scented with vanilla. Marnie rolls it out into a rectangle, but then she doesn't put down pats of butter the way Cindy does. Instead, she melts the butter, mixes it with a generous scoop of cinnamon, but also cardamom, ginger, clove, and nutmeg. When Cindy does it, she just uses the cinnamon and too much white sugar. Marnie spreads her cinnamon paste, crushes pecans in her hands, sprinkles them over the top, and adds just as little brown sugar as she can get away with. She tucks the dough into a tight spiral, twists the roll, and places it in the pan in an S-shape. After an hour of rising, she brushes on an egg wash and carefully balances a double recipe of crumb topping on it. The crumb topping is the best part. Two parts flour, two parts butter, one part white sugar, one part brown sugar, pinches of the spices used in the filling, more hand-crushed pecans. She places the babka in a cold oven and turns the temperature to 200, She'll turn it up in increments. This is the part Cindy cannot fathom. She thinks ovens must always be preheated. 20 or 30 minutes into the cooking, the odor will be intense. Five or 10 minutes after that, the babka will be done. Some of the pecans will be on the edge of overdone. Fresh out of the oven, almost the entirety of the babka has a soft texture, with the crispy exception of the topping pecans. It will burn the mouth of anyone who wants to eat it fresh from the oven, though they'll want to eat it anyway. Ten minutes out of the oven is the ideal time. The crumb topping is butter crunchy, the side and bottom crusts dry and crisp. The interior bread is steamy, soft. The interior filling bubbles, hot with spice, almost liquid, the interior pecans velvety. The spillage at the edges of the pan makes a most luscious spiced caramel. When she brings the warm babka out front, five people are already waiting for their slices, which will be perfect if and only if she hurries. The cutting is delicate work. She has to gently pinch the crust to keep each slice from collapsing, and Marnie concentrates. They ask if they could have some of whatever smelled so good, Cindy says as she rings up a customer. Sweet old Miss Helms, who gets to bring her dog inside a purse. The Wendells are here, and Luke, and more customers make their way from across the street. Luke eats his slice and nurses his coffee so incredibly slowly that he outlasts the first morning rush and makes small talk as he finishes. It is only the three of them for now. Luke's beautiful face is set off by the yellow walls, the blue and white checked floor. Marnie can't imagine a backdrop that would not set him off. Marnie tries not to stare at him as she wipes the yellow counter, as she refills the napkins, as she rearranges the remaining coffee cakes in the display case. She can't help catching his eye. She knows that Cindy admires his looks, but she does not expect there's anything deeper between them. Cindy stands with hands on hips, glaring at the donuts. She's made too many of them again. It seems that one day they'll sell out, 
and then the next day they'll linger here to be collected by the man who takes them to the homeless shelter. Or if he doesn't come, they'll turn dry, and Cindy will have to take them out to the dumpster. She hasn't quite admitted to herself that the days when Marnie makes them are the days when they do sell out. Cindy and Narni, almost the same age, were thrown together at every family event. Narni and Ninny, they called each other. Until recently, they've never spent much time together except at these gatherings, but they've thought of each other often all through their separate lives, and it seems right that they work and live together now. They never looked like relatives. Cindy was always the pretty child, and she has aged well. There is a certain squareness to her upper body now, and her skin is a bit flushed and chapped, but otherwise, she is still the same sunny, pretty woman she's always been. It's only that Marnie has aged into sultry, angular beauty. This and her sweet, shy demeanor would be enough, apart from the magic she does in the kitchen, apart from her extensive travels. Cindy is so jealous of her that she can barely swallow. After her husband passed, when she'd done her grieving and looked around for a way to take up something like the life she'd had, Cindy had thought of rootless Marnie, who'd said she would never marry, never settle, and whose life appeared to have suffered by that choice. They'd help each other, Cindy thought, and it has worked out, hasn't it? Business has been so much better ever since Marnie came. Cindy keeps swallowing the jealousy until one evening when she goes out for a bottle of something to help her sleep. She comes down the stairs from the apartment and catches rosy gold light far back in the storefront. The bakery has been closed for hours. The lights are still turned off, except for one little stained glass accent lamp in a corner, which silhouettes the figures of a beautiful man and an angular woman in a shy embrace. There are some days between this and the fight. Not many days, and then Cindy is following along behind Marnie as she packs her things, hurling bitter words at her. Marnie barely answers Cindy's attacks and never returns them, but it seems each comment she makes, something as little as a yes or a sorry, enrages Cindy. Her skin burns so red it seems she might not live. Finally, it is done. Marnie steps out the residence's front door, right beside the bakery's front door, and Cindy locks it behind her. When Cindy locks the door, Marnie turns right onto the sidewalk, thinking to turn the corner and go into the alley where her car is parked, thinking this all will blow over soon and that she must get the bags into her car and spend a night or two at a motel to allow Cindy cooling time. And she does walk down the sidewalk a few steps before things begin to go dark. There is a lady in a plum print dress walking in sunlight toward her, and Marnie intends to smile at her when she comes a little closer. These things are difficult for her, shy as she is. She doesn't want to leer at the poor woman from paces away, nor does she want to seem to snub her. And just when she feels it is the perfect time to turn her face up for the smile, the woman is gone. The sunlight is gone. Her visual field holds nothing but a many-colored static degenerating to brown-gray and rapidly falling to black. The memory of the sky still plays in her eyes, the afterimage of the woman's dress now a yellow-greenish rectangle. Oh my, she says, and with that, the sounds are gone as well. It had not been loud on the street, just light traffic and perhaps a shush of breeze in the trees, but the breeze is gone now. The traffic is gone. Cindy, she says. 
She turns back towards the door. Nothing is there, not even an echo. Marnie sets down her bags and crouches beside them. She is afraid that if she stops touching them, they will disappear along with everything else. Some time passes with her crouched there, holding them, sobbing, calling for help. No one comes to her. Her first thought is that her senses have been taken, but it can't be. She hears her own calls and her breath, after all. She hears the sounds of her hands on the bags, the sound of the bag's fabric sliding together. She stands. Making sure her legs stay in contact with the bags, she reaches out to where the buildings ought to be, just a foot or two feet to her right. But there is nothing. She is not close enough. She puts the bags back on her shoulder and grasps her suitcase, moves a few paces to the right. Nothing. She is too terrified to move again. She thinks the traffic could still be moving just a few paces from where she stands. Relief floods over her as she remembers her phone and takes it in her hand, but its light is incredibly dim. The photograph of her in front of a waterfall, which should be the screensaver, is just a brown-gray rectangle. There is no hope of seeing words on the screen. She tries the voice feature, but it does not seem to work, or perhaps it too is muted, like the screen. Marnie thinks it's possible that if she sits here longer, her eyes will adjust. She puts the phone in its place in her purse and holds the purse close. She sits cross-legged with her hands on the bags. Eventually, she begins to feel the ground. It is not rough concrete. She crawls along it, feeling it, dragging her bags with her. There is no texture to it at all. It is as smooth as marble or glass, but not cold. She grows quite hungry. It was after closing time when she came out the door, and she can't remember her last meal. She imagines she smells warm babka and donuts, frying eggs, fresh white bread with butter, sausage drenched in maple syrup, coffee with peppermint. She drifts off to sleep without knowing it's happening and comes awake to the darkness. She fumbles for a lamp before remembering where she is. She turns on the phone. It is still a dim rectangle, but with real excitement she remembers the flashlight feature. It is difficult to make the gestures, when finally it does turn on, she can barely tell it has. The light should be intense, but it is so dim it will not reveal more than the rough outline of her fingers from half an inch away. She holds it to the floor and sees nothing. The floor is so black that it can't be lit. She spends more time trying to make a call, trying to do anything, but there is nothing she can do with the phone. She expects that someone will call and she will be able to press the correct place on the screen to answer. She places the phone back inside its pocket on the side of her purse and hugs the purse close. There comes a time when she has to use the bathroom. She is terrified to move away from her bags, so she carries them 20 paces in the direction of the buildings. She holds her bags up off the ground while she pees. She feels vulnerable, unsure if maybe she has gone blind and deaf and is doing this in reality, in the middle of a lawn, perhaps. And also thinking something may attack her while she's in this position, it could be that there are other beings here, beings who can see, who will stalk her and take her. Nothing comes for her, and when her bladder is empty, she stands and paces back to where she was before. She does not know if the traffic still moves somewhere off to the left of where she was originally, or if she has now walked into the area where the buildings stand. And the building could come back. Of course they could. And then she will be trapped in a wall or in a tree that stands in this place where she sits. 
there is no way to know. But it is some comfort to think that she's come back not too far from where she started. She laughs at herself for thinking there were beings able to see in the dark. They would be using echolocation, wouldn't they? She would not know they were present until they took her in their mouths. There is no point in thinking of them. She takes her clothes out of the suitcase and makes a bed from them. She brushes her teeth with a tiny dot of toothpaste, carefully combs her hair and braids it. She places the other bags around her body and opens the empty suitcase above her head. It feels safe, like a tent. Her breath soon warms the space and scents it with spearmint. She is able to fall asleep. The most terrifying part of her time in the place is the moment waking up from the first long sleep, disoriented, sure it has all been a dream. She wails, bargains with God, cries for help again, and all the rest. Finally, she moves her hands over her pile of belongings. She selects her heaviest sweater, rolls it tight in the purse. She takes a pair of pajamas, a couple of pairs of underwear. She takes the toothpaste, the toothbrush, the phone, her car keys. She searches the bags again for anything to eat, but there is nothing. She puts on a clean pair of jeans and a clean t-shirt, and, still unsure if this is the right thing to do, she walks away from the rest of her things. It feels good to be free to walk, even if her steps are halting. She walks slowly for about half an hour and nothing changes. It is still black. The floor is still slick and tepid when she drops to check it from time to time. She turns back. There is some hope that she might step into the pile of things, but that does not happen. She walks for about an hour, turns back. She feels like she will keep walking for the rest of her life. She checks the phone again. Dim as the screen is, once she turns it off, an after image lingers before her eyes. A brown-gray rectangle in front, a dim rectangle behind her if she turns. But there is something now before her face, a larger rectangle. She is trotting towards it. It is before her, the window of the bakery. All of the colors are terribly muted, but they are colors. The first she's seen in, what, two days? As through a sepia-tinted screen, she sees the checkerboard blue and white floor, the yellow countertop. This is all the detail she sees at first, but as she comes closer, she can see blue cake boxes stacked on a shelf. She can see the cash register, rows of dark brown donuts. She looks behind her, and there is only blackness and a haunting violet and orange after image. The storefront is empty, no customers, but the sign just behind the glass says it's open. The tinkle clink of her fingernail against the glass is enchantingly real. Cindy comes into the room with a white cake. She just stands frowning towards the window. Let me in, Marnie calls. Please. She gropes for a door that is not there. Cindy sets the cake in the glass case, pushes it forward. Marnie is banging on the glass now, and Cindy finally trudges over to the window. The shape of her mouth is so ugly. Marnie almost can't look at her, but she does. She stares into Cindy's eyes and mouths, Let me in! When the door opens, does it cut into darkness? It must, but Marnie does not see. Her eyes are full of tears now, stinging from the bright light. She is incoherent. She is grasping onto Cindy, and Cindy accepts the embrace for the first instant, then struggles away saying, what's wrong? What happened? And what? And 
calm down. Sitting at the bistro table, trying to drink a coffee and eat a cocoa cake donut, Marnie can't seem to calm down. It strikes her that Cindy is not Cindy, and this place is not the bakery. She squints and holds her hand at her brow to cut the light at first. Her eyes are badly swollen from crying. Everything hurts. Her limbs, her stomach, her skin, and the light hurts most of all. She does not take in everything at once, but the donut is so bad. So bad. It is dry as a mound of potting soil. And then she sees the Cindy sitting across from her is so red in the face, her pores so large and black, her teeth so yellowed. There are dark hairs at her lip line, at her chin, dark hairs coming in below her eyebrows. The tabletop is a lurid yellow, skimmed with something Marnie believes must be sweat. The coffee reeks of piss. She can touch it to her lips, but that is all. Marnie's heart is pounding, but she tries to make her face calm. Thinking Cindy might try to force her out the door again any moment, she makes cringing smiles. When she can speak, she says, I think I just need to lie down. Can I? For just a little while? Cindy says, I didn't think it was you at the window at first. There was a tapping, but no one was there. And then you seemed to push forward out of the background. It was so strange. Marnie says, Could I just lie down? Would that be all right? Cindy says, What happened to you? Did someone attack you? I can tell you later. Can I? Did you get in a car accident? Of course not. Did you do something? I don't think so. May I? On the couch? You can go get in your bed, I suppose. Upstairs, the bed has been stripped. Cindy brings a stack of folded linens and says she needs to get back. The bakery will be open for another hour or two. The sheets look filthy and smell of sweat. The mattress pad is bald with rough, scratchy lint and hair, but Marnie curls up on it. The room smells bad. It does not feel like home, but she is still so terrified of going back out in the darkness. All she can do is lie still, thinking of what she can tell Cindy to let her stay, what she can do so that she'll never have to go outside again. Her mind runs this way until she falls asleep. When she wakes, she looks out the window. People move out on the sidewalk. There are trees, cars, streetlights, dogs. She imagines that her suitcase and her clothes must be out near the corner, but they are not to be seen from the window. Did someone take them or did they never appear? The picture of herself standing in front of a waterfall, she stares at it for a long time. There is no angular beauty in this picture, just a skeletal, leathery woman with horse teeth and downcast eyes. She deletes the photo and all of the other lying photos she finds on her phone. Marnie can eat her own cooking. She tries making the babka in the night and waits ten minutes for it to cool, all the time shaking with hunger and dread. It tastes good. She eats half of it, feeling nothing but gratitude. In the morning, she tries making an egg over medium. It does not taste like it should, but it tastes like food. She tries again, this time with more butter, more pepper, less salt. She watches it closely and eats it at the ideal time. She recognizes the taste of an egg this time, and it is excellent. She cannot eat anything Cindy makes. 
She tries over the next few days, but can't bring these things into her mouth. All Marnie needs to do to keep her place is cringe and flinch, promise to do better. She apologizes for not being able to go out. She apologizes for anything she ever did in the past. She tries to stay in the back during bakery hours, but the customers call to her. Luke comes in, happy to see her back. She recognizes him only by his distinctive hairline, the set of his shoulders. His head is oversized now, the jaw monstrously overlong. The eyes she remembered being so beautiful barely look like human eyes. The brows jut out over them, hanging them in shadow. She evades him as best she can. It is not just the outward things that have been transformed. Her thoughts, too, have become monstrous. Where once she thought, I will never marry, with a whimsical air, maybe thinking of it as a challenge to the right man, she now sees that line as a grim certainty built up from horrible things she learned about marriage as a child. All of her childhood comes back to her in terrible detail. So much pain and so much boredom and insecurity and shame. Her travels as a young woman come back to her as a series of desperate, wasteful flailings. The past plays out in intricate detail. Marnie scrubs the bakery floors and walls. She asks Cindy to bring in stronger light bulbs. These efforts help the place to look something like it did before. There are more customers every day, and when they enter, they take in the surroundings with appreciative size. The expanded breakfast menu is a success. The bread and donut smells heightened by the addition of eggs and meat. Marnie likes to watch television so much more than she ever did before. The dramas, the talk shows, especially the romantic comedies, they remind her of real life. Everyone is clean and vital, all the colors pure. Almost everyone on television looks human. She works as hard as she can all day, and in the evening she settles in her corner of the couch to escape into these images until Cindy wakes her for bed. What's wrong? Cindy asks from time to time. She reconciled herself to the fact that Marnie is not going to go, and really, the business has never been better, and she feels guilty. It seems to her that she and Marnie will be partners now, in a bond deeper than sisterhood, deeper than marriage. Marnie will stay, and it will always be the same. She thinks she needs to reassure Marnie of this, and tries to do so over and over. It never quite translates. One night, Cindy asks what's wrong, and Marnie sits with her hand close to her mouth. Her eyes do not meet Cindy's. Marnie says... I was wondering if I might be able to get a TV for my room. I lost my laptop when I went out, you remember. I don't need another laptop, but a TV, maybe a couple hundred dollars. I don't have money of my own, but you say business has been good. I hope that if I haven't made enough money for us yet, maybe in a few weeks. Of course you've made enough money, Cindy says, sitting down on the sofa. Thank you. I so appreciate it. She slides closer to Cindy and directs her attention to a flyer on the coffee table. I saw this on sale, and I don't think it would be too far away. If it won't fit in your car, you could put it in mine. The car. She hasn't thought of it, but it has been parked for weeks now. Could the battery have run down? Or what else could happen to an abandoned vehicle? Has it been stolen? Vandalized? I can go get your TV. Not tomorrow, though. 
Only, why can't you go out? Cindy says. Her voice lowers. Is it agoraphobia? Marnie brightens. Yes, that's what it is, in fact. But how could it be, when she's traveled so far and seen so much? She makes the effort to look straight at Cindy and smiles. Marnie can't speak of the nightmare she still has. Cindy never gets the television for her, thinking that it will not turn out to be a healthy thing, thinking that if she had it, she would not ever come out to the living room. Cindy starts watching movies with her instead. They sit close together, turn off all the lights. Marnie makes popcorn drenched in butter. They both begin to grow plump. It helps. Cindy does not go out as often. She grows paler, less ruddy. More and more, in the light from the television, she looks the way Marnie remembers her. Marnie dreams she is back in the dark. There are many other windows. She only has to find them. All of them look in on Cindy, crying to herself in her bedroom, going about her sad process of getting showered and dressed. Cindy in her upstairs kitchen eating soup out of a can. In her bakery, fumbling about with ingredients she doesn't understand. In the dreams, Marnie desperately pounds on the windows. When she recalls the dreams, she wonders at how her dream self wants so much to be back inside Cindy's dreary life. Cindy is dating Luke now, but it's such a low-key arrangement that Marnie often forgets about it. Cindy will come in at 10 or midnight once in a while, and she'll send Marnie off to bed same as always. Marnie doesn't go to bed at all unless Cindy wakes her. One night, when Cindy lays her hand on Marnie's shoulder to send her off to bed, Marnie shrieks. Her face is all terror, and when Cindy sits to hold her, she pushes away. What's wrong? Cindy says. Marnie, still almost sleeping, says, I was watching a cartoon. Cindy has no response. She tries again to hold her niece, and this time Marnie lets her. Up close, Cindy's breath is rancid. The oil from her face touches Marnie's cheek. It feels thick as honey. My life was like a cartoon compared to this, Marnie says. Everything's gritty here. Everything's brown. And there are all these complicated histories behind the things we say. I want to go back. She pulls away from Cindy, wipes her face with her own sleeve. Back where? says Cindy. She has no idea what this is about, but thinks maybe Marnie means to travel back to a place she visited long ago, or maybe back home. But there are no parents for her. Cindy's grandparents passed over years ago, and there is no one for her, really, back in her hometown. Where? Good question, says Marnie. She stands and trudges towards her room, turns back. She says... Sometimes I think the black place was all just a metaphor about my trips. You know, you get scared traveling, you get excited, maybe scared of what's out there. You pack and you repack a smaller bag. The black place, says Cindy. She comes close to Marnie. She strokes Marnie's hair back from her face and Marnie lets her. Marnie's eyes keep traveling over Cindy's face. Maybe that's where I was all the time when I thought I was seeing waterfalls, Marnie says. Do you want to go away again? 
Cindy says. She knows Marnie doesn't have the money to travel. What good does it do Marnie to want to go somewhere? Is it Luke? I'll tell him it's over. I will. I don't want you to leave, Cindy says, to help her niece back into this view of things. She reaches for Marnie's hand, doesn't notice her wanting to flinch back. You know how much this place means to me. Before you, I was about to lose it. I was going to be alone with nothing, and so were you. We have a good life now, don't we? Cindy is almost about to cry. See what I mean? Marnie says, her fingers writhing around her face to show the complexity of it all. There's all this history behind what you say. It wasn't like this before. For a long time, Marnie occupies herself cleaning and arranging the bakery and getting the food just as close to the real as she can. All of this delights the customers. They see it as someplace hyper-real, like a theme park, like being inside a movie. They come in droves, keep asking when the bakery might be expanding. Cindy doesn't touch anything but the cash register now, but that keeps her busy. Marnie is so busy, she never dreams, almost never sleeps. There is cooking and cleaning, and every day she tries to find, within the building, a door leading back to where she was before. How many places there are to go? The storefront and the cafe area, the bakery kitchen, which has two rooms, the downstairs storage area and the public restroom. Upstairs, the two bedrooms and the living room, the kitchen, the bathroom, the odd little study. Many, many doors to open, linger at, check. If there is nothing new behind a door one day, who's to say there might not be something in the next? Each door must be opened at least once a day, even the doors of the cupboards. The bakery door and the front door of the residence, the door leading out to the alley, all of these can be opened and checked. She can't bring herself to send her whole body out of them, but she can step out with a leg. She can angle out her head, her shoulder. Her restlessness has risen to a sufficient pitch by now, and she stands in the open front door while the regulars eat their breakfasts. She has one foot on a blue tile, one foot on sidewalk. You're going out? Calls Cindy from the cash register. Marnie looks back and sees Luke standing next to Cindy, his hand resting limp and grotesquely purple on her shoulder. The Wendells are closest to the door, with their plates of babka, perfectly scrambled eggs, and pepper bacon cooked crisp in butter. There's nothing out there like this says the smiling Mrs. Wendell. It doesn't look like there is. The street is there, and the traffic, people walking. But all is dim and brown with a fine-grained texture. It's like looking at the world through maple syrup. No, crystallized old honey. It's magnified, distorted, tinted amber. The people out there are no more real-looking than the ones inside. Cindy is approaching, she takes Marnie's shoulders gently from behind. She is saying something. The revulsion nearly sends Marnie out to the sidewalk, but she wills her foot to stick to the blue tile. She pulls her errant foot back inside. Marnie spins around. Before she knows what she's doing, her hands are grasping Cindy's arms urgently right above their elbows, and she is moving Cindy by force. She is holding the door open with her back and swiveling Cindy toward the outside. What? says Cindy, pulling back. 
Help me, says Marnie. She turns her eyes to the regulars. Please, help me. Mr. and Mrs. Wendell both stand up. Luke takes two more steps towards her, too. The others seem like they would help, if there were more time and if they understood, but their help isn't needed. Marnie moves Cindy outside all on her own and pulls the glass door closed, locks it. Cindy is right up against the glass at first. She stands close for a moment, confusion coming over her face. She squints and rubs her eyes. She takes just one step back, but it's enough. Everyone in the bakery watches as she pushes behind the background of moving cars and storefronts.